You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. I don't think I'm going to forget where I was on Saturday, May 21st, 2022 at 2.02 p.m. I was a passenger in a friend's truck two blocks from my house. It was dark out. It looked like there was going to be a terrible thunderstorm, and within seconds, it started raining. I said to my friend, that rain is intense. And my friend said, that rain is sideways. And I said, there's lawn furniture in the sky. The next few minutes were a complete blur. It was intense. Most intense storm I've ever been in. I found out later that we had weathered a direco. It's a Spanish word for straight line. It's a reference to the straight line of thunderstorms and hurricane force winds. Direco. Really? First there were frost quakes, and then were, there were Arctic bombs, and now we're experiencing Derecos. It feels like they're kind of making this up as they go. You know, seriously. I've never heard of any of these weather conditions before, and in the past two years we've had all of them. It was eerie. And more deafening than the sound of the storm, which was intense, was the deafening silence immediately after. And then for five days, we slept through the low hum of generators and woke to the sound of chainsaws. And yet, out of all this devastation, so much beauty. Neighbors sharing food and hot water, gasoline and coffee, generators, batteries and flashlights. People talking for the first time since they moved on to their new streets. It was pretty remarkable. Don't get me wrong. It was filled with devastation and incalculable loss, including the loss of life. But there was also the value brought to community in the aftermath, at least the potential of value. Nothing but a storm could have done that kind of work. It's like that storm did to my street what COVID couldn't do in three years. And life can sometimes be like that. Sometimes it's the little things that break us, yet the big overwhelming things we face we somehow seem to manage. It's kind of surprising. I find that when I read through the gospel stories, I'm equally as surprised at times to what the disciples are so affected by and what they aren't affected by. I'm reminded as I read these stories to find myself in them and recognize that I, as I sit in a boat with 11 other uh, followers of Jesus, we all have different personality types. We're all experiencing life differently. Mark tells an interesting story in chapter 4, starting at verse 35. He says that after a busy day of teaching the crowds from a boat pushed out a little ways from the shore, Jesus says to the disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And so they set out to cross to the other side of the lake. They send the crowd home and they take Jesus with them in the boat, which he'd been sitting. And they're accompanied by several other small boats. And then... A violent squall of wind, which drove the waves overboard until it was almost swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And then he was awoke with the words, Master, don't you care that we're drowning? Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind, and says to the waves, Hush now, be still. And the wind dropped, and everything was still. Why are you so frightened? What has happened to your faith? Jesus asked them. But the sheer awe swept over them, and they kept saying to each other, Whoever can he be? Even the wind and waves 
do what he tells them. In the gospel accounts, Jesus and his friends are in a boat in an evening crossing when a fierce squall makes them feel they're in danger. The disciples are frantic trying to keep the vessel afloat when they discover Jesus asleep on the stern and they accuse him of not caring that they may die. And Jesus gets up and he proceeds to rebuke the storm and he asks, what has happened to their faith? This seems to make a great children's story. I remember being told this story a lot as a, as a child. But this account wasn't written for kids. Not that they can't understand it or, or learn something from it. But Mark, who wrote the earliest version of this story, wrote it during the terrible Jewish-Roman War in the late 60s, about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, this story is sometimes mixed up with another story of the disciples in a boat, where they also experience a storm. In the other story, Jesus isn't asleep, but they see him walking on the water. That encounter is recorded in Mark as well, only two chapters later in chapter 6. Now, there are some similar observations, but this one is different enough that it gets its own telling. I think for the early believers who heard this story, it wasn't so much about miracles. It was about faith. It was about trusting God. You see, a story only about miracles would have been disappointing for the readers living during the terrible persecution. This one instead is more powerful. It's not just about what amazing things God does, but what amazing things we can do trusting in God. And this retelling reminds us of that. Don't you care is actually what the disciples wake Jesus up with. This is their complaint. It's the first thing they say to Jesus when he opens his eyes with his head on a pillow. Maybe they pull the pillow out from under him to waken him. Don't you care that we're going to drown? We're going to die? I love that Jesus never feels the need to address the question. Because it's redundant. The disciples know he cares. But they just need to ask it anyways. We're like that, aren't we? I am. I'm constantly asking God redundant questions like this. Half my prayer life is asking God redundant questions like this. I don't need an answer as much as I just need to ask the question. It's rhetorical. It's therapeutic. I already know the answer. I think it is interesting, this contrast that Mark paints here. It's so striking. At one end, you have frantic, hysterical disciples fearing that they're in imminent danger. And on the other end of the same boat, of the same sentence, you have their holy teacher not only asleep, but with his head on a pillow and he's sleeping well. If Jesus comes to show us what God is like, man, here's a thought. It's not a big leap to consider that God is more concerned with you than what concerns you. And sometimes God's apparent silence is more deafening than the waves. And I know this personally, but I have, I have to consciously remind myself that silence doesn't mean absence. And this is where faith comes in, to trust, to believe, that God is aware and caring and sitting with me in the dark. Notice what it is in the story that eventually wakes Jesus up. It isn't the sound of the storm, the waves, the wind, no. The water splashing on his face. No, it's the sound of his followers' voices. I think sometimes people can just assume that God will just come in to the rescue and, and, and stop whatever's happening in their life that's terrible. But this story was told to reassure the early followers of the way who were facing tough persecution that God doesn't abandon us. 
This was told to a people who were probably wondering if God cares or even knows of what they're going through. This story was told to encourage them. The assumption can be that the storm is proof that God is gone in our lives. But that isn't the case. The presence of God is never gone. Yet there are times when we question, where is it? And the short answer is, we're always in the middle of it. Jesus is in the boat. The disciples weren't upset that he wasn't with them. They were upset that Jesus wasn't scared. Storms are incredibly destructive, and they don't need to last long to do a lot of damage. This past weekend, the Direco may have lasted 10 minutes, if, and in that time caused millions of dollars in damage, and we still have people without hydro over a week later. The consequences are felt long after the storm has passed, yet within 30 minutes after the storm last Saturday, the sun was out. You see, all storms come to an end. It's the nature of a storm. And they can feel like they're lasting forever. But something changes when we go below deck. When we go below the deck of our lives. During difficult times, it's always to my surprise that I discover the creator of the universe who was there all along, resting unafraid, encouraging me to ride out the storm. He could stop it. But contrary to the televangelists, God isn't interested in changing the weather. God wants to change our hearts. We keep praying for the big storms to just miraculously disappear. And many think that this is what the story is about. That's only one way of reading it. And believe it or not, that's the smallest way. For the early followers of Jesus, that rendering would have been clearly disappointing. This story was meant to encourage them. And believe it or not, there's a bigger way to read the story. The smallest way to read it is that God just stops the storms. God just stops bad things from happening to good people. I've always thought that faith was facing the squall and demanding it stop. But I've come to discover another understanding buried just below the surface of the story. When Jesus asks them why they still have no faith, he's referring to weathering the storm, not stopping it. Read it again. After he calms the storm, he looks at the men and says, Why are you so afraid? Where has your faith gone? Is the person who has faith the one who goes outside and demands that the storms stop? Or is it the person who hunkers down and trusts that it will pass? Faith is trusting that the storm I'm in doesn't get to determine the feelings inside me or the path ahead of me. In fact, I think that a better translation of this passage is because faith and trust come from the same root word in the Greek language. Let's read the story again and replace trust for the word faith. And suddenly the story is about you. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Why don't you trust? The presence of God in your midst. It's a terrible thing when we let our trust rust. We face storms of many kinds in this life. Some of them are of our own foolish design. Some in the relationships we choose or the life we pursue that ends up tossing us around. I haven't had much luck asking God to change the weather in my life. But I have found him in the bottom of my boat, tranquil and unafraid, encouraging me to sleep restfully through the darkness of my storms. 
And I've come to learn that this old story told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their biographies of Jesus isn't so much about waking God up, but maybe God teaching me to sleep assured of his presence. This has been a hard thing for me to discover. Humility and honesty are often the miracles needed to stop the chaos in our lives. But then there are those storms that come from nowhere, and we look deep inside to see if the universe is punishing us for something we've done. We make our case before God, wondering if he's asleep at the wheel. Sometimes we discover that God isn't asleep at the helm, but resting deep inside, unafraid, encouraging us to rest with him, assured that this doesn't have to be our end, and that we should rest. Because when the storm ends and the wind is gone, our lives will be way off course, and we will have some rowing to do. But that's how we discover new lands. These are the moments we see with new eyes. You see, the life of the faithful is not unmarred or unscathed. And this isn't because that wouldn't be faith, but because that wouldn't be life. When you've learned how to ride out a storm, really learned how to persevere and keep going, you've grown. Now, there are many icons that symbolize the early church. The cross wouldn't appear as a sign of Christianity for almost a thousand years. Instead, the sign of the fish, the ichthus, a symbol recalling the story of Jonah, a sign of this community that believed in resurrection or life on the other side of disruption, life on the other side of a storm. When these accounts were first written, they were meant to be read in community. There was no concept of personal devotions or reading the Bible by yourself. It just didn't exist. Because these stories needed to be discussed in community with those who understood it differently. There was value in discussion. There was value in perspective. This was and still is a deeply Jewish value. I think storms are a similar thing. They're meant to be endured together, not alone. The image of a ship is a perfect model for community. Navigating, enduring, discovering. Some early followers would have found the symbolism in this story incredibly encouraging. Its earliest hearers were facing horrific times in a brutal, violent war. There was no physical Christ in their midst, but they, they found comfort in Jesus' words to his disciples in this story. Where is your faith? Or, in who are you trusting, he asks them. In you, the early followers would say. Thanks for the reminder. But who really wakes up in this story? In his book, Falling Upwards, Richard Rohr, who writes that we should never let a storm pass through our lives without grabbing hold of it and demanding that we become better because of it. Not that we need to merely become better, but that we can make this terrible crisis serve us and not ruin us. If we let these hard times go without making them teach us, grow us or stretch us, then they come and go unredeemed, and we're left with nothing but devastation. They're merely experiences that weaken us. Perhaps, like in this story told about Jesus, storms aren't about waking God up, but maybe waking us up. And with a bit of irony, sometimes they wake us up to the idea that we can rest knowing that while all hell breaks loose around us, this doesn't have to be our end, but can be the beginning of something new. And maybe Jesus has it right. Darkness is for sleeping.